Welcome to the one and only Interior Design Book Podcast. Decorating by the Book, hosted by Susie Chase from her dining room table in New York City. Join Susie for conversations about the latest and greatest interior design books with the authors who wrote them. I'm Leslie Green Bowman, president of Monticello, and I'm a co-editor with Charlotte Moss of our new book entitled Thomas Jefferson at Monticello, Architecture, Landscape, Collections, Books, Food, Wine. This gorgeous book explores the cultural contributions of Thomas Jefferson through architecture, landscape, collections, books, food, and wine. Thomas Jefferson, born 1743, died 1826, the third president of the United States, designed his Virginia residence with innovations that were progressive, even unprecedented, in the New World. Six acclaimed arts and cultural luminaries pay homage to Jefferson, citing his work at Monticello as testament to his genius in art, culture, and science. There are so many Jefferson and Monticello books out there, but this is truly different. Could you go through how this book is organized and talk just a little bit about the contributors whom you call Jefferson's modern day cultural peers? Absolutely. Thank you, Susie. We organized this book around Jefferson's great interests in the arts. And as I mentioned in the preface, the one area of the arts we couldn't cover visually in a book, of course, was music. But Jefferson was a cultural connoisseur of his own time. And when we had the opportunity to work with a world-class interiors and, and exteriors photographer like Miguel Flores Viana, it set a stage that we felt that really the best way to understand Jefferson's contributions was not for an historian um, like me or some of our staff to talk about them, but for his peers today who have stood on his shoulders with their work and who um, who understand the impact he has had on American culture. So we turn to those that you know are, are wonderful authors, Annette Gordon-Reed, Carla Hayden, Jay McInerney, John Meacham, Xavier Salomon, Gil Schaefer, Ellen. Waters and Thomas Waltz. So Annette Gordon-Reed and John Meacham are both Pulitzer Prize winning historians and they did the introduction and the conclusion. So you really understood the man um, even before landscape architects, architects, uh, librarians, wine connoisseurs, and culinary um, experts like those I've named then took you deeper into each of those areas. So in the book, you write about how Monticello is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and recognized as a masterpiece of human creative genius. Annette Gordon-Reed, American historian and Harvard Law professor, said, Monticello represents the best and the worst of America, like the pyramids, the Parthenon, the Great Wall of China, and many other sites honored for their cultural significance. Monticello was made possible by enslaved laborers and artisans. I do believe this is vital information in terms of understanding the full significance and history of Monticello. This book honors and recognizes the enslaved men, women, and children who gave their life to Jefferson's vision and designs. Well, I'm so gratified that you agree that it's vital to understand when you're at Monticello, or even if you're not, 
that the enslaved people who numbered at any one time 100 to 130 in Jefferson's possession working at Monticello, he had other slaves working at other plantations that he owned. His life was made possible by this free labor and certainly everything we talk about in the book. So every essay speaks to the contributions of the enslaved community. In many cases, we actually do know names and marriages and links of service. Monticello is unusual in being one of the best documented and best researched plantations of its period. Um, We know the enslaved cooks who um, provided the cuisine. We know Wormley Hughes, the head gardener at one period of Jefferson retirement, who's really in charge of that incredible vegetable garden. We know some of the names of the enslaved laborers who learned to become carpenters and joiners with the help of the white hired workmen that Jefferson initially hired to build Monticello. And we know that they worked, most of them, from dawn to sunset six days a week. Annette Gordon-Reed in her essay brings out the kind of aha fact that these are the people who made Jefferson's, certainly his way of life possible and his lifestyle possible, but they also made it possible for him to think big ideas (laughs) that helped found our country. So Carla Hayden, the 14th Librarian of Congress, who happens to be the first woman and the first African-American to hold the post, contributed the library essay. The collection was, in essence, Jefferson's enlightenment, and it was his sense of passion and destiny that drove him to be one of the great 18th century book collectors. Could you please chat a little bit about his collection? Sure. And um, I should have mentioned at the outset Every contributor to this book had already been to Monticello and had an understanding of Jefferson relative to that art form. So when Carla Hayden was appointed the 14th Librarian of Congress, we were thrilled that one of her first trips was to come to the wellspring of that library, Monticello. That library was certainly his enlightenment. Jefferson was throughout his life curious and devoted to the idea of human progress. And he believed that it was only education that would contribute to solving the problems of humanity. And he believed that that knowledge resided in, of course, books and intellectual intercourse with other great minds, much of which takes place in letters and books. So he did collect the greatest library on the continent of its time. When he sold the library to Congress, when their library had been burned in the War of 1812, there were a total of 6,487 volumes. And I think the total number of books he owned was between nine and 10,000. He began recreating his library, of course, after he had sold it. And he wrote famously to John Adams, I cannot live without books. He was so ahead of his time. Well, he understood the concept of man having equality with others, obviously, if government's allowed and if society is allowed, and that man could improve himself through education. And he also believed that self-government and democracy and the republic that he helped found were not possible without an educated citizenry. So he was passionate about education. And that all begins with collecting 
knowledge and making it accessible to people. You know, the Library of Congress before it burned was nowhere near the dimensionality of the library that it became when they bought Jefferson's Library. And so... We really have Jefferson to thank for the mission statement of the Library of Congress. There were congressmen who didn't believe they needed all these books in different languages and on all these other subjects in the arts and in science. You know, we just need politics and history and government and law. And he replied, and of course, I'm paraphrasing, there was not a book in his library that a public servant might not need to consult and that he would let them set the price on the library, but he would not divide it. Xavier Solomon is the deputy director, chief curator at the Frick Collection here in New York City, and he wrote the collections chapter. He kicks things off uh, talking about mirrors, which was fascinating to me. And he said mirrors were a status symbol. I would love to hear about that. And how was Thomas Jefferson influenced by Parisian design? Well, I love the way Xavier begins that chapter. Mirrors were very expensive to produce. The larger the mirror, the harder it was. Not unlike the great porcelain figures in the 18th century, the larger the figure, the more likely it was going to be destroyed in the process. So large looking glasses, as they called them then, were um, extremely rare and expensive. And the larger the glass, therefore, the, the more the status symbol, right? But mirrors in general were expensive. And you probably recall that earlier in the 18th century, even back certainly in the 17th century, even just window glass was expensive. So, you know, homes had smaller windows, right? Much of it had to be imported. They didn't start making plate glass in the colonies until probably the early 18th into the mid 18th century. So mirrors were a status symbol. They also were an architectural necessity to enhance light inside rooms. We're talking about pre-industrial interiors that are lit by candlelight, um, later on by whale oil, so and by other types of oils that are a little bit brighter than candles. But we have no electric light or even consistent gas lighting at this point. So mirrors are a critical way in the houses of the affluent to enhance and amplify light in a room. You're asking about Jefferson in Paris, and it's just such an amazing five years that he spends there. You know, he goes to Paris really because he is deeply in mourning over the loss of his wife after 10 years of marriage. And he's so morose and depressed that Washington and Franklin and Adams and his friends in the Continental Congress decide that they really need to get him to Europe and try to distract him and pull him out of this depression. And initially, they they asked him to go and help um, negotiate the peace. But by the time it was possible to settle his affairs and get on the right ship, ships didn't just sail every hour, they had concluded the Treaty of Paris. And so he, in fact, then became Franklin's successor as the ambassador to France. And he exclaims when he arrives, he's, he's like a sponge, just soaking up everything. From the moment he lands at the harbor northwest of Paris, he's talking about the farms, the agriculture, what he's seeing. He gets to Paris and he says, behold me on the vaunted stage of Europe. And his greatest love is studying the arts in Paris. He's horrified by monarchy. He's horrified by the poverty. He writes continually about how America is a worthy experiment 
and how much better the people are in America and, and how um, how much they benefit from the new government, of course, that the founding fathers put in place. But he waxes rhapsodic about the arts. He goes to theater, he goes to concerts, he goes to art galleries. And of course, he takes his famous um, tour of agriculture and vineyards, which is deeply influential when we get to the wine chapter. So as Jefferson was creating Monticello, he was bringing to Virginia what he believed to be the best that Europe had to offer. So the furniture at Monticello is a combination of American and European objects, table and chairs created in Philadelphia, New York, as well as pieces acquired in Paris and London. I thought it was so interesting to read that many of these objects were purchased not only for their elegance, but also for their technological innovation. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I love how Annette Gordon-Reed sets the stage for that in her opening introduction when she talks about Jefferson being continually innovative, continually devoted to progress, and therefore his aesthetic is governed by a dual focus on both beauty and utility. And so in almost everything he's doing at Monticello, it's a laboratory for living. It's a laboratory for how to bring the arts as well as the sciences, how to have rooms that really contribute to human intellectual intercourse and conviviality. His interest in paintings and sculptures and portraiture is obvious. He had many more things than we hang today because we're still trying to get reproductions or find what exactly they looked like. But we've even just this year found another lost piece and brought it back. He set up Monticello very much as a museum for everyone who came, certainly the public rooms. Um, So when you go into the front hall, what he called his Indian hall, you see European paintings and you also see artifacts from Native Americans from the Lewis and Clark expedition, right? Another form of portraiture, if you will. Instead of showing his own aristocracy and his ancestors in portraits, which is what most men of his class would have done in Virginia at that time, he's really showing you the worthies of human knowledge. He's showing you the breadth of intellect and the enlightenment. So his portraiture really takes a different dimension. And that's why he's got portraits of the three greatest men who ever lived in his mind, the great scientists and philosophers, John Locke, Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon. He's got portraits of Columbus, and Magellan and Sir Francis Drake, the great explorers. And of course, he's included in the Pantheon um, his own peers in the Continental Congress and the new fledgling American experiment, George Washington, Ben Franklin, James Madison. So I love to think of Monticello as an enlightenment view of the world, glorifying human knowledge and human possibilities. Jefferson's curiosity continues into the food space. Alice Waters, the chef, activist, and author, wrote the piece about food and gardens. In the book, you talk about the food Jefferson served and loved. You also talk about his garden, and it's impossible to separate the two. I was surprised to read that he enjoyed a mostly plant-based diet, so I'd love to hear about that. I think that surprises all of us. He attributed his his very good health and longevity he lived to be 83, which was quite a long, quite long in that period. He wrote in 1819 to a friend, and I quote, I have lived temperately, 
eating little animal food and that not as an aliment so much as a condiment for the vegetables, which constitute my principal diet. End of quote. He believed in exercise, he believed in fresh air, and he believed in a diet that was principally vegetarian with meat as a condiment. Something we've come back to, I think, a few hundred years later as we think about our diets. So the dining room is beautiful from the Wedgwood plaques on the dining room mantle to the French marble console table to the vibrant chrome yellow color that at the time... (laughs) apparently was a new expensive pigment. It's stunning. Please chat about that color. (laughs) You know, I was afraid I might have hate letters when we changed the color of the dining room. I came to Monticello and assumed the presidency in late 2008. And I think only within maybe the first six months, the head of the restoration department came to me and said, well, we've worked on this for several years. We've sampled the dining room numerous places, and it really was yellow. And we'd like to put it back. And I knew that this is going to be a bit of a game changer for people because there are lots of wonderful photos of Monticello's dining room. That beautiful sort of Wedgwood blue matches the Wedgwood in the mantelpiece. But but we are UNESCO World Heritage Site. We're a museum and we're academically correct. So when we were able to identify the color, we were stunned because, as you mentioned, It was one of the most um, fashionable and newest colors of its time, and certainly one of the most expensive. So $5 a pound, and I think white lead was something like five cents or 10 cents or something. So yes, Jefferson ever being au courant and aware of, of trends, and I'm sure he saw this in Europe. The color originated first in Europe and then spread to the United States. But what I, I think is so beautiful about the choice of that color uh, and by the way, my uh, my friend and um, senior curator Susan Stein calls it the color of egg yolks when hens have been eating marigolds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a you know we Ralph Lauren sponsored that um, restoration and actually produced a color that was almost identical. We obviously mixed the color exactly the way it, it had been done in the 18th century, which is not something that would work and be enduring on wells today, but they called it Monticello Yellow. And it, it's one of those colors that if you'd put it in a small bathroom, you'd probably run screaming, right? One of the reasons it works so well in that dining room is that dining room has skylights and lots of light. It's another one of the innovations at Monticello that was unusual for its time. And so with the white um, paneling around it and the skylights, the yellow, I think, and thank you for admiring it, I think it sings, but I can also tell you something most visitors wouldn't know, which is that it absolutely glows in candlelight at night. So think of it also as a beautiful entertaining space after sundown. My absolute favorite photo in the book is on pages 110 and 111, which was Martha Jefferson's bedroom where she slept as an adult when she returned to manage her father's household. It's on the second story, complete with a French red toile canopy bedstead that I want, uh, that her (laughs) father bought her from Paris, and she has the most gorgeous high boy dresser. Um, Then there's a small window that is situated very low on the wall, and it seems to have a heavy cream 
cream, linen, or cotton simple pullback curtain. Could you please describe this room? Well, I think you've done a really good job, Susie, but I can demystify <laughs> it a bit. And I love your references to Paris because this room and the parlor are the two rooms that are most French and really evoke that time in Paris. Of course, Martha spent five years in Paris too. Her father took her with him um, when he went and she was in a convent school. We restored it as part of our mountaintop project, which finished in 2018. And that was thanks to um, a lead gift from David Rubenstein. But interestingly, our co-editor, Charlotte Moss, and her husband, Barry Friedberg, specifically sponsored this room. So I'm thrilled that it's one of your favorites. Only two people at Monticello had private bedrooms. So besides Jefferson, it's Martha Jefferson Randolph, his daughter, and his widowed sister, Anna Scott Jefferson Marks, who are given private bedrooms. Um, the grandchildren, you know, there are places to sleep. The, the boys are sharing a bedroom up on the third floor. So this is a big deal. And I think it is telling that Martha would have had so many French accents in the room. She even had a beautiful red leather little like jewelry box in which she kept the ribbon cockade that Lafayette threw to her when he was parading through Paris and went by the convent and she was out on the balcony because of course he knew her very well. He was a good friend of her father. And so he tossed her in a very gallant gentlemanly way the cockade from his hat. Um, and Martha kept that, of course, for the rest of her life. So it's a it's a really compelling room in talking about the relationship between Martha and her father, for example. The um, it actually has a closet which is repurposed from where an alcove bed would have been. So if any of you have been to Monticello, most most people know Jefferson's famous bed that's in an alcove between two rooms. But the other alcove beds are literally alcoves with three walls. And uh, Martha in, in her 50s is petitioning her father to please let her turn that into a, a closet and let her have her French bedstead. You mentioned the uh, window down at floor level. That's a really important architectural point that Gil Schaefer talks about in his essay. One of the lovely, lovely architectural devices that Jefferson uses at Monticello is to minimize the volume of the house by certain techniques, one of which is that the second story windows, this bedroom is on the second story, are actually lined up right above the first story windows. So by putting those windows at floor level, when you look at Monticello as you approach it from the east elevation, those windows appear to be continuous and it looks like a smaller one-story house. You know, it's interesting because you were talking earlier about how expensive glass was, but Jefferson splurged on mirrors. So I kind of thought maybe his windows would be larger in the house. Well, actually, he's got more windows in that house than probably any other house of its time. And he actually had a mathematical formula because ever the scientist, he believed natural light was very important to our health. And so the square root of the cubic volume of the room, it was in an equation, dictated for him the amount of area that needed to be window glass. So he's got triple hung sash windows, for example, that go all the way to the floor and can be raised up to become doorways out into the landscape. He's got skylight. If you think about the front door of Monticello, it's actually three huge glass door height windows, one of which, of course, has French doors in it. 
So there's actually a lot of glass in Monticello. You just don't happen to see it in those second floor windows. So Charlotte Moss is one of my all-time favorite interior designers. And you mentioned she's um, the co-author of this book. How did she come to be part of this project? Well, this is a dream Charlotte's had for a long time, and she's really responsible for kindling the flame into life. Charlotte, as you know, is a stellar, highly well-known interior designer and one who has published many fantastic and beautiful books. And so she has a great relationship with her publisher, Rizzoli, and um, she's also on our board at Monticello. And uh, somewhere along the way, a few years ago, we were chatting and she said, you know, I think Rizzoli would like to do a book on Monticello. And I said, well, we'd love to talk to them. And really it was Charlotte reaching out to her publisher and then hosting in her living room, a kind of a brainstorming session. Um, we want to shine the light on Jefferson's amazing contributions in the arts and in design. You know, we, we, we talk about him so much in other veins and there's a lot of discontent with him right now because people are trying to come to terms with the fact that he was a slaveholder and we need to understand that. But we also need to understand some of the amazing contributions he made to our country's culture. It was her idea to begin to put together on the team with Rizzoli that ultimately resulted in this book. How is this book two books on the arts? I love it that you asked that question because it allows us to talk about the amazing, talented, world-class photographer, Miguel Flores Viana. I should say about Miguel and about everyone who wrote for this book, everyone did it as a gift to Monticello. They love Monticello. They love Jefferson. And for them, it was an homage to a place that they love and an organization they wanted to support. So Miguel was really the first expert artist that we talked to once we had the idea for the book, because we knew we had to have visuals that would convey Jefferson's genius, but they were also equal to his aesthetic acumen. And we knew Miguel was that photographer. So we have nothing in the book that isn't Miguel's work. So it really is two art books because the obvious one is it's, a, it's an art book about Jefferson's contributions to our culture and, and how they matter today. But it's also an incredible array of Miguel's great work and the power of his eye. And I think that if Jefferson could see these images, I think he'd feel he had an aesthetic counterpart. So you're the president of the Monticello and the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, and you're also an author. And I would love to hear about how you came to this job and your vision for the foundation. So I have a degree from Winter Tour in the University of Delaware in early American culture. I was both an American history and art history major. And until I came to Monticello, I worked exclusively in art museums. I was a curator of decorative arts, of American decorative arts out in Los Angeles. And then I was the director of the Winter Tour Museum, where I had years before worked on my degree. So I consider myself an addicted curator to the arts. And I... I leaped at the chance to come to Monticello because I thought Jefferson was the founding father who did the most for the arts and that he was underappreciated for that. And I also found, I think Monticello is just one of the most beautiful places um, in America. 
And so I left Winterthur after nine years and came to Monticello. And I'm continuing to learn about Jefferson. He's fascinating. He's our American Leonardo. And I think the vision, you know, it's changed over the years. Initially, when I arrived in 2008, it was very important to begin to restore the honest and inclusive portrait of everybody who was at Monticello making Monticello and Jefferson's life possible. And we, we talked about that a little earlier. Um, and so we had a $35 million project called the Mountaintop Project that restored the landscape of slavery. We put an exhibit in the room where Sally Hemings lived. We obviously at that same time um, restored the upper floors of the house and furnished those rooms that had never been on tour before. And I think the vision is always about being as honest and authentic and helping visitors who come to Monticello see it as a place where they can see themselves and feel history and see how it's come forward in our lives. So Annette Gordon-Reed's quote about America being the best and the worst, um, this country is in a lot of turmoil right now around race. And our hope at Monticello is that we can offer an honest portrait of the past, which is where many of these tensions began, in the hope that as we gain greater understanding of that history, we can also gain greater understanding of how to move through it and reconcile and move forward and better realize the words in the Declaration of Independence. Our vision right now, because we have done a lot of work and we're proud of it and we continue to tell these stories every day, we're now looking ahead to the 250th anniversary of the country in 2026. So barely four years away, our country celebrates 250 years. And the date is, of course, the date of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. It's, that is marked as our moment of birth. And Jefferson gave us that document. So our vision for the next five years is to really illuminate the meaning of that document and its weaknesses, as well as its strengths. I think we all know that when the founders um, adopted it, none of them, including the author, thought of Native Americans or women or um, Africans or African Americans as included in that statement that all men are created equal. But Jefferson also, more than perhaps any other founder, um, wanted America to improve and to build on the vision. And he talks about every generation needing to take it forward. And I think the beauty of Jefferson's words in the Declaration are that they have become the rallying cry for every marginalized group who wants to be treated equally and who wants the same dignity and respect and privileges. And that's not just in this country with the women's movement or the civil rights movement. It's around the world. I mean, you have Gandhi quoting him, you have Mandela quoting him. Our vision now is to really help the country find common ground and understand what the declaration meant and the work we still have to do to um, continue the progress that Jefferson wanted for the country. You know, as much as this is a magnificent coffee table book, and it's truly a thing of beauty, I also believe this is an essential history book for each and every library in the United States. Have you thought about that? Yeah. Or just me? <laughs> well, I love it that you said it that. just me? I love it. <laughs> Well, yeah, we always think about that. And we are also the publishers with Princeton of Jefferson's Papers, um, which we also think need to be in every library in the United States. I'd love for this book to have a representation in all the great libraries because I think it's a dimension of Jefferson that is often missing. And I appreciate it that you've, you've really fixed on that in your admiration for it. Okay, I have to ask one last question. This is the sure. million dollar question. What is your favorite room at Monticello? 
<laughs> That's so hard. If I want to crawl into the mind of Thomas Jefferson and just even try to understand his genius, of course, it's his cabinet where he had all these books and not in, it was his sanctum sanctorum. He, it was only by invitation that you could go into his private suite. When Sarah and Rospero Jr. visited I loved it when we got to the cabinet and Ross, who is an aviator himself of great accomplishment, took one look at the cabinet and the polygraph with the two pens to make a copy and all of the things, the, the scientific instruments and the books. And he said, this is a cockpit. And I thought he's nailed it. It's exactly in a small space. Jefferson had everything set up. He could look east. He could see the time. He had everything at his fingertips. But if I wanted to go enjoy a room and if I were, of course, we don't do this. But someone said, which room would you like to just relax and listen to some music or read a book, which are two things I love to do? Oh, my gosh, it's the parlor. Those fabulous mirrors, the beautiful parquet floor, the, probably the first of its kind in America. I love the combination of French furniture with American furniture, not only from New York and Philadelphia, but furniture made right there in the joinery by John Hemmings, Sally Hemmings' brother, an enslaved carpenter. Jefferson wasn't snooty or elite about having to have everything look like a European house. He took, I think, great delight in mixing American and European things. And it's beautiful to see that in the parlor. I, I love the light. I love the, the volume of the parlor. I think the parlor is the most Palladian room insofar as it is almost a perfect cube. Therefore, like two and a half stories high, right? To match the, the, the breadth and the width of the room. And it has the gorgeous windows right out onto the West Lawn, bringing the inside out and the outside in. So I think I'd, I'd have to vote for the parlor. Where can we find Monticello on the web and social media? So Monticello.org is our website and our shop also has a website. It's MonticelloShop.org and we would love your visitors and your listeners to follow up and explore more about Jefferson and Monticello and particularly his dimension in the arts with this book. To purchase Thomas Jefferson at Monticello, head over to decoratingbythebook.com. And thank you so much, Leslie, for coming on Decorating by the Book podcast. Thank you, Susie. It's been a pleasure. Can't wait to see you at Monticello. Follow Decorating by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the one and only interior design book podcast, Decorating by the Book.